Welcome to the Question Community Broadcast. The Question is a new disruptive community that provides a gathering place for those who wonder about our complex selves, our complex world, our complex universe. We are a non-religious and inclusive community that explores the many questions surrounding truth in order to encourage you on the important journey to find your own answers. The Question Community gathers every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary, starting at 7. Information on the community is available at our website, www.thequestion.ca. You can also join the community online at our Facebook page, which is The Question, and on Twitter, at TQCom, with two M's. You're now going to hear some highlights from our community gathering, where the question is asked through original arts and music, as well as thought-provoking presentations. This is David Andrew Weeb. So earlier this year, I had the opportunity to share about the power of words. The name of the presentation was Words, Beacons of Creative Power, or Mere Devices of Communication. The title suggests that there are two ways of looking at words. They either have the power to create circumstances and events in your life and the life of others, or they're merely tools for communicating with others and little more. What I originally thought to be a disruptive presentation on the effect of words on people, plants, and metals, or everyday objects, turned out to be more or less a foregone conclusion for most people that were part of our gathering that day. But there were a couple of things that I left out because I felt they might be put a bit of a damper on the flow of the presentation. The first has to do with Dr. Emoto Masaru, the expert on the effects words and emotional vibrations have on the physical structure of water. Now, it is true that Emoto studied water crystals extensively. It's also true that he published multiple books on the subject. But what you may not know is that the scientific community largely considers his studies pseudoscience. And pseudoscience is a claim that's presented as being scientific, but does not adhere to scientific method. The more controversy there is surrounding a particular topic, the more I tend to think that there might be something worth exploring. And I think some of you would agree with that. After all, I think it's important to question the idea that truth is readily accessible, that it can be easily defined, and that everybody knows exactly what it is. If that were the case, the process of inquiry as well as our community discussions and arguments, maybe they wouldn't be entirely unnecessary, but certainly less stimulating and controversial. I don't know about you, but I think that there are people in this world that want to withhold the truth from the general public, and they might even have a vested interest in doing that. So in the case of Dr. Emoto, although there might be a vocal group that's quick to discredit his work, that doesn't mean it isn't worth exploring. The second thing that I left out of my previous presentation has to do with Arjun Walia. I didn't include the last sentence in one of his quotes from the article entitled, Nothing is Solid and Everything is Energy, in my original presentation, thinking that it might be too revolutionary of a concept to process, and I now know that's not the case. But here's the quote. Studies have shown that positive emotions and operating from a place of peace within oneself can lead to a very different experience for the person emitting those emotions and for those around them. At our subatomic level, does the vibrational frequency change the manifestation of physical reality? If so, in what way? We know that when an atom changes its state, 
It absorbs or emits electromagnetic frequencies, which are responsible for changing its state. Do different states of emotion, perception, and feeling result in different electromagnetic frequencies? And here's the part that I left out. Yes, this has been proven. Now, as far as Walia is concerned, our emotional state does affect our reality. I know that I've just presented some conflicting pieces of information and that I might have even unraveled some of the threads holding together my previous presentation. On the one hand, we have a man that dedicated a good portion of his life to the study of water and didn't see it necessary to subject his work to scientific method, or at least so we're told. This doesn't necessarily discount it, but it does call it into question. Also, in light of what I said earlier about truth tellers being silenced, it's entirely possible that Emoto is actually a truth teller that's been deliberately discredited. On the other hand, we have a man claiming that vibrational frequencies absolutely affect our surroundings and that our perception and feelings result in different electromagnetic frequencies. This claim seems to validate Emoto's studies as much as the content Emoto himself produced. Does this tension cause you to question your previous assumptions, your acknowledgement that words do indeed affect plants, metals, everyday ordinary objects, and even human beings. Because if you remember, that's exactly the conclusion we came to last time. Or does it instead reinforce what you felt was true and right in the first place? And with that, I'd like to introduce Words Beacons of Creative Power or Mere Devices of Communication Part 2. First, I'd like to unpack a subject dear to my heart denotations and connotations. As a youth, I used to go to various church conventions and camps. One camp counselor had a profound effect on my life. His name was Mike. I don't remember how our conversation led to this particular point, but Mike said something rather interesting that has stuck with me ever since. A connotation is the meaning you attach to a word. At that point in my life, I was fascinated by vocabulary and words and I would go out of my way to look up various words I didn't understand. Keep in mind, I had recently returned from Japan after spending eight and a half years in kindergarten and grade school, and when I returned to Canada, I had some catching up to do in terms of my studies, particularly with the English language. But it wasn't long before I discovered the word denotation. The denotation is the dictionary definition of a word. Denotation, connotation. Another way of saying this is that a denotation is the objective, largely agreed upon meaning of a word that can be found in the dictionary. While a connotation is the subjective, personal meaning of a word. But paradoxically, neither are necessarily correct or incorrect. To illustrate, I'd like to give you practical life examples for both a denotation and a connotation. First, a denotation. If you're a Scrabble or a Boggle player, there's a good chance you've called someone out on making up a word. And in some cases, much to your surprise, you found out that the word actually existed in the dictionary. And you had no prior knowledge of the word. But it was there all along, so you can't really say that it was false. Oh, and you were probably penalized in the game for accusing others of making things up. Now, a connotation. There's a good chance you've read a sentence in an article or a book, and even though you knew that some words were used incorrectly, the meaning still came across. Nothing was missing in your understanding or interpretation of the sentence. Was the sentence structure incorrect in some way? It probably was, but it didn't impede your ability to grasp it. So that makes it true. 
The author or editor may have made a mistake, but the message still took root in your mind. Fred recently shared a presentation on the cloud and the future. And arguably, it's one of his most alarming and harrowing presentations to date. If you missed it in September, I hear that he might be sharing it again because it was quite timely and powerful. The cloud is such an interesting way to describe entire server farms that require incredible power and cooling to maintain. Plus, these server farms are loaded with a lot of our personal information, some we voluntarily gave away, and some data we never wanted to get out in the first place. Arguably, that data is anonymized and inaccessible to most. But that doesn't mean that it can't be hacked, leaked, or misused. Just Google the hacking of popular websites, the leaking of information that resulted from them, and you'll see that this has happened many times already. As a ghostwriter on many topics, I've noticed that in the world of big data, security is still an often discussed topic. And that should tell you something, especially now that we have the technology available to gather data from any device with a connection to the internet or any object that has a sensor attached to it, are, are we beginning to realize the implications linked to privacy and security concerns? Fred said it well. When we think of clouds, we think fluffy, happy, friendly, harmless, beautiful. These are all specific meanings or sentiments we attach to the word or any imagery of clouds. In other words, a connotation. But what we discovered together is that cloud technology is anything but harmless. Based on Fred's presentation, you've probably starting new opinions of what the cloud is and what it could mean for our future. And for some, it might even represent the apocalypse. Is it any coincidence that they decided to call it the cloud? Surely, they would not have opted to call it the demon or something along those lines. They didn't want us to have any negative associations with it and that was likely a deliberate choice. Did they succeed? I'll let you decide. The cloud sounds like something that's up in the air, but it isn't. It's literally a warehouse full of computers eating away at our energy resources and keeping record of our personal information for the end goal of personalized marketing and sales. Sounds a bit fishy to me. But are you beginning to see the paradox of words? Sometimes we create meanings for words. Sometimes others create meanings for us. When you really think about it, this is all part of how we function. As human beings, we are compelled to give everything a name because if it doesn't have a name, it can't be explained. But that name, which may only be made up of a word or two, often represents so much more than just the word itself. I recently finished reading a 300-page tome called Blockchain Revolution. It took the authors a whole 300 pages just to explain how this technology could disrupt and change society as we know it. This goes to show that a single word can represent the entire concept or idea that can't be expressed in just a few words, contrary to what the dictionary may have you believe. This is Elliot Lauren Wyman.
straw legends too damn big for either one to ignore so I'll offer a bit of an explanation. It could very well be the subject of a future presentation as well. The blockchain is an emerging digital technology. If you know what Bitcoin is, you likely associate the blockchain with digital currencies. But as it turns out, the blockchain holds considerable potential, not just for transactions involving cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, not just for financial transactions, but transactions of all forms. The blockchain is secure, efficient, transparent. It's decentralized and cut out unnecessary intermediaries. With it comes many promises, including the global distribution of wealth, the easy transfer of money from one country to another, particularly for immigrants working in North America and sending money back to their families overseas, and even a better music industry. What's my point? My point is that we take words for granted. 
we naturally assume that we all know what the rules of our native tongue are and how to communicate with each other in a way that gets our message across clearly and eloquently. And to an extent, we're all capable of that. But if you like to read, you probably have a favorite author, writer, or blogger that you follow, or perhaps several of them. And you would likely say that they are good with words. And that's one of the reasons you enjoy reading their words in the first place. Would that then suggest that some of us aren't very good with words? Ultimately, you can't stop the chaos that comes from the mixed meanings we derive from denotations and connotations. Best to my knowledge, we don't enforce thought dictatorship anywhere in the world. Nobody is policing your thoughts, though this doesn't mean that they aren't trying. At least for the time being, we get to make up our own minds about what particular words mean to us. Fred also shared about the subject of love earlier this year. I'm going to echo his conclusion here, but is it fair to say that there are seven billion different interpretations for the word love, even if each interpretation is similar in some way? The dictionary definition is simply insufficient and incapable of swaying our beliefs about love one way or another. Love is to us what love is to us. Spellcasting and the systems of control. Did you know that you and I are magicians? The school system taught us how to be wielders of magic, albeit not very good ones. When we're learning to spell, we think we're learning how to arrange letters together in a particular order to form words. Did you notice something strange about what I just said? I said we learn to spell. And as we all know, magicians cast spells. So when we are learning to spell, we aren't just learning how to form words. We're learning how to activate various functions in our reality with our words. First, a couple of practical, everyday examples. When someone makes a request of you, asking politely and ending their inquiry with the word please, do you turn them down? When someone says thank you with a smile, do you feel better or worse about yourself? It's certainly subject to the situation, but most of the time, your response is predictable. When someone asks nicely and isn't making an unreasonable request, you consent. If someone thanks you for something you've done for them, you feel a little bit better about yourself. Our response isn't just dictated by words. It's a natural reaction thanks to our mirror neurons. Because of mirror neurons, we look to others to determine what our response should be in an unfamiliar situation or environment and in our interactions with others. On a subconscious level, we're constantly adjusting our behavior in subtle ways. There might be more to the adage, monkey see, monkey do, than you thought. We direct energy with our words. And the most powerful thing in the universe is energy. Sound tones have certain vibrational patterns that we usually refer to as frequencies. If you believe Walia's statement from earlier, you're at least partly acknowledging that this is true. Musicians, and especially studio engineers, are all too familiar with the concept of frequencies. If you go on YouTube, you can even find music that has been developed around a specific frequency. 432 hertz music is for healing, and likewise, 528 hertz music. There are studies showing the positive effects of these frequencies on the human body. But this is tangential to the topic at hand, so I'll let you explore this idea further on your own. And then it goes into the, the actual song. Um, I'm not going to talk about it yet. Let's talk about it after.
wants to be just somewhere else Cause there's a kind of comfort that you just can't find Nobody ought to try to be someone else So why is it so damn hard to know your own mind? Lead on Omnithought.org and energyfanatics.com made some of the following observations. First, let's explore the word court. The word has many meanings. The first entry in the dictionary is typically a place where justice is administered or something along those lines. 
But a court is also a place where we play tennis and basketball. When it's used as a verb, it means to seek the affection of someone. When I looked it up on dictionary.com, it listed off 26 uses of the word court. And if we were to add connotations to that number, there's no telling how many entries and meanings we could derive from this word alone. Chang describes the court, a place where a legal hearing occurs, as a game arena. In other words, it's a place we go to play a game, and that's why it's called a court room. The judge is there to win, and if we don't know the rules or how to play by them, it's unlikely that things will go our way in the proceedings. Another fascinating word in the context of justice and law is the word contract. When you separate the word in two, you get the words con and tract. The word con can mean to swindle or to trick. A tract in this context would describe a treatise. What do you get when you put the two together? A deceptive treatise or a treatise of trickery. Chang goes so far as to say that when we enter a contract with a corporation or the government, we are being conned and that we are willingly consenting to terms that probably aren't in our favor. At this point, I'm compelled to make a comparison to reality TV. The setup is almost always the same. A group of people gathered to compete for a prize, and sometimes they are separated into opposing teams. A celebrity host enters the room, and the contestants ooh and ah. Then the judges are introduced, and again, the contestants are starstruck and humbled by the talent that's there to what? Judge them. Although there is often second place or third place prize, there's only one winner, and the winner often competes for what? A contract. Fascinating. Pause. Now, if your mind just went where mine did, you're about to make an interesting connection to how words are formed and what it could mean for a concept I introduced earlier. What am I talking about? The word connotation. Separate the word in two, just as we did with the word contract, and you get the two words con and notation. Now, we already defined the word con, and as you probably already know, the word notation means the act of noting, making, or setting down in writing. So if you're comfortable with the assumption that the creators of our language were paying careful attention to every single word that went into our lexicon, then you might come to the same conclusion I did, that connotation actually means deceptive note, writing of trickery, or the equivalent. Are the creators of our language trying to tell us something? Are they saying that the meanings we attach to words are mere deception? Or are they saying the opposite? Are they mocking us? Or are they pointing out our ignorance? Chang confirms as much. He says that we may need to examine a word from every possible angle to understand its true meaning, and that a dictionary definition alone won't offer a full explanation of its origin. An etymology dictionary, however, might provide additional clues. Let's examine one last word before discussing implications and possibilities. The word is baptism. The denotation of baptism is a ceremonial immersion of water or application of water as an initiatory rite of sacrament. It could also be defined as a ceremony or action of initiation or dedication. But Chang explains it this way. When someone is baptized, that person is considered to have entered into a covenant with the Lord, 
When you break down the word covenant, you get coven and. The word coven means an assembly of witches, especially a group of 13. The suffix definition of and is causing or performing an action or existing in a certain condition. It can also mean serving in the capacity of. Once you know the relationship between the word baptism and covenant, you will know that when a person is baptized, that person is serving in the capacity of a coven or is making a contract with a coven, which is a group of witches, male or female. The group of witches who controls all the churches of the world are the dark magicians. Now, I think most of us in this room are familiar with the concept of baptism. And some of you may have even been baptized into your particular faith. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands, but if that is the case, I have no doubt that you have your own feelings and memories attached to those events. Despite what the so-called dark magicians may have intended, you may look upon your baptism as a special day of transformation, of faith, and of hope. This is another important demarcation point between denotations and connotations. But it's not unreasonable to think that some might look upon baptism in a negative way, too. topic of your words and your future. I've recently been reading a book by Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz called Onward, How Starbucks Fought for Its Life Without Losing Its Soul. In 2007, Schultz identified some concerns with how Starbucks was being run as a company, and in 2008, he officially returned as CEO. With the financial meltdown approaching, he immediately went to work to save the company. During this time, the company decided to update their mission statement. Now, if you don't know already, Starbucks has always had 
pretty amazing vision for the organization. But they wanted to update it at this juncture in their journey, not necessarily because it needed to be changed, but because they wanted it to include their future in the scope of their written mission. I'm going to take a moment to read it because it's not something you would normally pay attention to unless you work at Starbucks. The Starbucks mission to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. Our coffee, it has always been, will always be about quality. We're passionate about ethically sourcing the finest coffee beans, roasting them with great care, and improving the lives of people who grow them. We care deeply about all of this. Our work is never done. Our partners, we're called partners because it's not just a job, it's our passion. Together we embrace diversity to create a place where each of us can be ourselves. We always treat each other with respect and dignity, and we hold each other to that standard. Our customers, when we are fully engaged, we connect with, laugh with, and uplift the lives of our customers, even if just for a few moments. Sure, it starts with a promise of perfectly made beverage, but our work goes far beyond that. It's really about human connection. Our stores, when our customers feel the sense of belonging, our stores become a haven, a break from the worries outside, a place where you can meet with friends. It's about enjoyment at the speed of life, sometimes slow and savored, sometimes faster, always full of humanity. Our neighborhood, every store is part of a community, and we take our responsibility to be good neighbors seriously. We want to be invited in wherever we go to do business. We can be a force for positive action, bringing together our partners, customers, and the community to contribute every day. Now we see that our responsibility and our potential for good is even larger. The world is looking to Starbucks to set the new standard yet again, we believe. Our shareholders. We know that as we deliver in each of these areas, we enjoy the kind of success that rewards our shareholders. We are fully accountable to get each of these elements right so that Starbucks and everyone it touches can endure and thrive. If you go to the Starbucks website, you'll see that this mission statement is still more or less intact today. Is Starbucks succeeding in what they set out to do? I'll let you be the judge, but in my opinion, I can see many of these principles at work whenever I walk into a Starbucks location. Are you starting to feel a deeper responsibility for the words you use in your communication? Are you beginning to realize how your words could shape your future? Now we're going to explore several examples of prophecies and predictions that have come true, both positive and negative. I'll be going rapid fire at this point, but if you want to go deeper into each of these, you can also Google them when you have a moment. In 1987, movie critic Roger Ebert was asked how the competition between movies and TV would change in the future. He responded by saying, we will have high definition, widescreen television sets and a push button dialing system to order the movie you want at the time you want it. You'll not go to a video store, but instead order a movie on demand and then pay for it. Video cassette tapes as we know them now will be obsolete, both for showing pre-recorded movies and for recording movies. People record films on 8mm and will play them back using Laserdisc CD technology. With this revolution in delivery and distribution, anyone in any size, town, or hamlet will see the movies he or she wants to see. 1987, and as we all know, this has all come to be. Classic science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke predicted the emergence of online newspapers and perhaps even the iPad. 
In the film 2001, A Space Odyssey, two astronauts are shown using a device that looks suspiciously like what we know today as Apple's infamous tablet. Author, computer scientist, inventor, and futurist Ray Kurzweil predicted most modern technological advancements before they even happened. Not only has he accurately predicted developments in technology, he's also been able to predict when they are going to happen. This prompts one to wonder whether he has access to a time machine. In 1914, English writer H.G. Wells published a novel entitled The World Set Free. The book described a sea-destroying atomic bomb. Although Wells would not have known how nuclear de detonation could work, the Manhattan Project was nearly 30 years away in 1942. And when it comes to predictions, we can't ignore the, the notorious Nostradamus, a French apothecary author and seer. Among other things, he predicted the death of King Harry II when he said, the young lion will overcome the older one. On the field of combat, in a single battle, he will pierce his eyes through a golden cage. Two wounds made one, then he dies a cruel death. As the story goes, Henry lined up to joust Montgomery, who was six years younger than him, on the field of combat. Both combatants had lions on their shields, and of course, one man was younger and the other older. In their final pass, Montgomery's lance burst through the king's visor, sending one shard through his eye and one through his temple. Predictions have come from a variety of sources, not just from futurists, authors, celebrities, or famous people. Sometimes they have appeared in the printed word. Other times, they have been voiced in interviews or conversations. And still at other times, people have seen the future in their dreams. It's easy to write off predictions and prophecies as mere coincidence or just lucky guesses. And undoubtedly, some of have been. But if words have power, not only do we need to consider the future we see for ourselves and how we talk about our future, but also the source. Where does the power come from? Does it come from within? Does it come from without? Are we born with it? Does it have anything to do with the words we say? Or is it more to do with the intention behind the words? Last but not least, if you've been on the Question website or one of our social media profiles, then you've probably seen our stated purpose, which goes something like this. The Question is a disruptive community that seeks to provide an organic gathering place for those who wonder about our complex selves, our complex world, our complex universe. The new community is completely non-religious and inclusive. I'm sure you can see this reflected in the way Fred approaches his presentations. Recent discussions have often ended on a cliffhanger. But after all, we are not the answer, but the question. And it's in our culture to disrupt and to be disruptive. How do you think the question's stated purpose has guided what we have chosen to explore in our community? It's not hard for me to see it reflected in the content that's been shared. In Fred's previous presentation, Butterfly or Tornado, we looked at the difference between the people that catalyzed the movement and those that became the face of that movement. Sometimes, behind the scenes, people are responsible for initiating change in society, but may not necessarily be credited or recognized for their work. I'm summarizing a bit, but these behind the scenes people are essentially butterflies. Tornadoes are those who are widely recognized as the purveyors of significant shifts in the world. They're the revolutionaries, the faces of companies, the war heroes, the leaders of countries, the groundbreaking entrepreneurs, and so on. Roger Ebert may have predicted the way movies would be consumed, but he didn't invent the technology. H.G. Wells may have thought of the atomic bomb, 
but he had no idea the devastation it would bring. So the futurists and prophets we've discussed may not have played a critical part in their predictions coming about, but they saw possibilities that many others didn't. Ebert may have been a tornado in his own right, especially as a movie critic, but when it comes to the development of Netflix, Redbox, or on-demand movies, he was a butterfly. Clark was certainly a tornado, especially with his science fiction works, which will continue to live on. But as far as inventing the iPad goes, he was a butterfly, and perhaps not even that. We have no reason to believe Steve Jobs took direct inspiration from Clark. It's rather interesting to see how we can both be both tornadoes and butterflies at the same time. Now, your words are meaningful. But you may be thinking, well, that's easy for you to say, DA. You're an avid blogger, writer, and self-published author. And to that I say, you're right, but stay with me for just a moment. Studies tell us that 93% of our communication is nonverbal. We pick up the meaning of what people say through their tone of their voice and their body language. But I would like to challenge that notion. If the people around you only communicated with their body language, your coworkers, your boss, your family, your significant other, while it may be fun and even novel for a while, it would quickly become a frustrating experience. It's one thing if you are unable to speak, but quite another to be silent when you're perfectly capable of expressing what's on your mind with the use of words. Communication is the foundation of relationship, and without that, it can quickly wither and even die. Communication can take many forms, but needs to be present for two people to get along and sustain their friendship in your workplace, at home, at the various gatherings you attend. How do you communicate? What words do you use? How are those words impacting others? Thank you for listening. If you're interested in joining the Question community, we meet every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary starting at 7. You can participate in the online discussion on our Facebook page, which is The Question, or on Twitter at TQCom. That's at T-Q-C-O-M-M. Our website is www.thequestion.ca. Thanks again for listening, and remember that our answers are only possible because of our questions. <laughs>